amazing family that is John Knox Presbyterian Church. It's an honor to share from God's word with you this morning, as well as some stories from Mercy Ships, the uh, charity that you have so generously and faithfully supported for 25 years. And so I think it's appropriate to begin by saying thank you on behalf of our family. Thank you for supporting us with your finances and with your prayers. Thank you also for the very practical help many of you in this room have provided for us as we have established a home base in this community over the past years. I also think of people like Lisa Grayson and Jan Lentz, who came all the way to West Africa to volunteer with us. Thank you for the encouragement of your presence. And thank you to so many of you who have opened your hearts and your homes to us. Your warm and generous hospitality has given us a sense of belonging. And we've experienced community in your midst. And it will always be a hallmark for us of John Knox. And to the JK Go Send Serve team, we are grateful for all of the behind the scenes work that you do, not only in support of Mercy Ships, but all of our mission partners, both local and global. Thank you. John Knox, your support and partnership with us is close. It's been personal. And we could not do what we do without you. And that is to all of you. Mercy Ships has two hospital ships. Our newest one, the Global Mercy on the right, Lord willing, will begin active duty in early February of next year. And the Africa Mercy in the forefront has been working in the West African nation of Senegal since February of this year. My husband Gary, a maxillofacial surgeon, discharged his last patient this past Thursday, and he arrives in Seattle at 2.30 this afternoon. Yeah. So, the Africa Mercy is more than the name of a hospital ship. It's also the name of a community that is made up of 400 volunteers from over 40 nations, but our fundamental identity is that we are followers of Jesus. Now, in addition to the surgery that we, that we do, that we offer, we work with the Ministry of Health in each of the nations that we serve to help build the medical capacity of local healthcare providers so that not only are individuals helped, but when we sail away, the health system of the nation has been strengthened and encouraged. Now, our partnership with each nation begins with an invitation from the head of state. We bring what we have, a fully staffed hospital ship full of Jesus followers, and the government brings what they have. So things like our port fees, our water, our garbage collection, they're all waived by the government. And so Senegal, in nations like Senegal that have oil, even the fuel to run our generators while we're in port is donated. So it's not just about what we go and do on our own, but it's about we, what we can do with the nation in a partnership together. Another partnership that we could not do without and this is one of my favorite parts, is we hire 150 local people from, from the city we're in to serve with us. They're called day crew. They don't sleep on board, but every single day they're working side by side with us in almost every department. What an opportunity it is for us to make friendships 
with people from the local city and nation. Now the next slide is our hospital chaplaincy team. It's made up of two long-term crew members and 12 Senegalese Christians. For, for four months earlier this year, I was privileged to provide the leadership for this team. When I left, uh, the woman on the right with the burgundy scarf, she, her name is Clementine, and she served as our lead hospital chaplain for years. She took over the leadership of the um, program management from me, and she is doing an amazing job. Now, Senegal is 97% Muslim, and because this is being recorded, I can't share details with you about the results of our Christian witness, um, but maybe this story will give you some idea you can read between the lines. The day before I left Senegal, Musa, one of our Muslim day crew who works in the hospital as a translator, asked if he could meet with me. And here's what he said. I've been watching your hospital chaplains for the past four months, and I wanna ask you if you can get me the training that was given to them. I said, really, why, why? What, are you, what are you talking about? He said, well, sometimes a doctor will ask me, would you translate for me? I've got some bad news to share with a patient. It'll be things like you're HIV positive, your test results just came in, we can't operate. Or the biopsy of your tumor just came back and it's malignant, it's cancerous, it'll just grow back. He says, and when I have to translate for these doctors, the patients are so distraught, they're crying, I don't know what to do and it's just a terrible situation. But when we call one of the hospital chaplains, it's a completely different story. I see them walk the patient into their, we have a mash tent on the dock, the hospital chaplaincy tent. I see them walk the patient into the tent and they're in there for quite a while. And when they come out, the patient is smiling, calm, and I've actually even seen a couple of patients joking and laughing with the chaplains. I wanna know what they're doing in there. He said, it's like those chaplains know how to breathe life into people. I told him that the life-giving qualities that he is seeing in our chaplains are a direct result of their relationship with Jesus. He nodded his head and he said, I can honestly say to you that I love hospital chaplaincy. <laughs> I'm a Muslim and I'm not that big on religion. But when Mercy Ships returns to Senegal next year, I'm going to apply for the chaplaincy department and I'm going to say that I'm a Christian, just so I can get the training that, there that they have. <laughs> I assured him, you do not have to pretend to be a Christian. Clementine would be delighted to share with you um, and introduce you to the life-giving power of Jesus. I wanna share a couple of stories with you now of just a few patients. Globally, one out of 700 babies are born with either a cleft lip or palate. And about four years ago, in the small village in upcountry Senegal, Isatu was born with both a cleft lip and palate. Now, Senegal is a nation of about 17 million people, and there are two surgeons who can treat cleft lips, but there's only one who can do cleft lip and palate, and he was trained by my husband in 1993, so he's about ready to retire. Well, Usman never found that one surgeon, but unfortunately, he met a lot of doctors who were willing to run costly tests and take pointless x-rays, and before long, he had spent all of his family's money. The people in the village, they lost hope, and they told Usman, just give up. Isatu will never be healed. 
Well, as she grew and became aware that she looked different than the other children, they, for her protection, her parents would cover her up when they would go out in public. And if visitors would come to the house, they would hide her away in a back room. And Usman witnessed all of this with deep sorrow. And then the impossible happened. He heard on the radio, remember the radio? It's still going on in Senegal. He heard on the radio an announcement that a mercy ship was coming to the capital city of Dakar and that there were doctors that could perform this type of surgery. And so after years and years of disappointment, Usman and his daughter made the trip across Senegal to the capital and there he heard the words that he had long dreamed of. Yes, we can repair Isatu's cleft lip and palate. Well, following her surgery, Usman hardly stopped smiling. He told us how humbled he was by the love and care both he and his daughter had received. He said he knew we were doing God's work. Isatu made a full recovery on board, and not long after, she and Usman returned to their village. And when they arrived, the villagers could not believe their eyes. And Isatu's mother, Khadija, could not stop celebrating. She said, when Usman and Isatu were on the ship, I was so afraid I could hardly sleep. I finally received uh, a call from my husband, and it was the first night I had slept in weeks that my daughter was healed. One of the village elders told us this. He said, we had lost all hope. We thought she would die like this. Isatu is now our village's proof that with God there is always hope, and for that we will always be thankful. And so on behalf of Isatu, her family, and the entire village, thank you, John Knox, for your partnership. This is Dauda. He's 13 years old and would not make eye contact with anyone when he arrived on board. He had a t-shirt that he would pull up over his tumor to make sure no one would see it. His condition is called maxillary fibrous dysplasia. And if it happens here too, if it happened to you, your dentist would spot it and it would be removed by an oral surgeon before it got any better, bigger than the size of a dime. But once a tumor reaches this size in Senegal, there are only four surgeons that have the ability to remove this tumor. And just like Isatu's father, Dauda's father never found those four. And he spent all the family had on pointless blood tests and skull x-rays. On behalf of Dauda and his family, thank you, John Knox, for your support. This is your story, too. This is Sira. She suffers from bowed legs. Orthopedics is one of the six dedicated surgeries that we provide. Um, they mainly do club feet, but when we've got room, we slide a bowed, bowed legs in there. And we have a fully staffed physical therapy um, department. They also are in a mash tent on the, on the dock. We're getting so expanding so much that most of us are on the dock now. Um, but they help our patients in the recovery process. And here is Sarah after surgery, now with straight legs. On behalf of Sira, her family, and the thousands of children that she represents, thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for sticking with us. Well, I want to look at a text this morning. Hard, hard right turn. <laughs> that, begins <laughs> that begins right after the passage that Dr. Corey Schlosser-Hall spoke on last week. And I mean... I don't know about you, but 
we were told we could pick any passage in the Bible that we wanted and we didn't talk to each other, what are the odds that we would pick two passages that butt right up next to each other? I thought that was pretty cool. But hear now the gospel according to Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people, they gathered in the courtyard, and the high priest who was called Caiaphas uh, conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and they said, why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? She's performed a good service for me, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, and he said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he began to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, as we encounter this text, would you speak to each one of us exactly what we need to hear in this moment? Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Sometimes one hears this phrase, the poor will always be with you, as kind of an excuse. Overwhelmed by news and images of poverty and exploitation, it can be a way of deflecting the almost daily requests to give of finances, to volunteer for some project, to help someone in need. And so it can be offered as a way of stopping the conversation so they don't have to explore the existence of the poor or the needs of the poor any further. Or maybe for others, whether they work with the homeless or against human trafficking or issues of justice and equality or another cause, it feels like no matter how much they do, it's just a drop in an ocean of need. It doesn't really amount to much. And so you can call that compassion fatigue or donor burnout, but it happens. People that are consistently giving and involved grow weary. It doesn't seem like it's ever going to change. They don't feel like they're making a difference. And so it's a good phrase to trot out. Trot out. Well, the poor will always be with us. Maybe you've had some thoughts about this. You want to make a difference. You are making a difference. I can tell you that. But you wonder if your social action and your giving are helping or hurting. Is, is your work transforming people's lives or enabling them? 
Should we just focus on telling people about Jesus and not worry so much about getting involved in their practical needs? I mean, what's the motivation if the poor will always be with us? On its face, knowing what we know about Jesus, both his character and his mission, it's kind of hard to believe that this is a direct quote. Did Jesus really say that? Well, yeah, he did. And this exact phrase is repeated in um, Mark and John's version of this story. But does it really mean what it sounds like? Well, not exactly. And so part of what I want to talk about this morning is this troubling phrase that appears in the context of a story that's about the extravagant devotion of the woman with the alabaster jar, a woman that Jesus said would be remembered wherever in the world the gospel is proclaimed, and today, 2,000 years later, we're doing just that. Imagine the scene. As religious leaders are conspiring to kill Jesus, a woman holds in her hands what possibly is the most valuable item that she owns. Matthew doesn't give us her name. All we know is that she appears on the scene at kind of an awkward moment. Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper having dinner with his disciples. And since lepers don't usually throw dinner parties, we can assume that at some point in the last year, Jesus healed Simon. But it's a private moment, and this woman appears. She's holding a pale alabaster alabaster flask, perhaps trembling. She moves quietly towards Jesus. She stops by his side, and he looks up at her. And in a moment sure to shock the entire room, she pulls the stopper out of that flask, and she begins to pour the ointment on Jesus' head, perhaps massaging it into his hair as it drips down his face. The room is filled with the heavy fragrance of the perfume. You can feel the awkward tension as as she continues to massage Jesus' head. Affection, longing to be in his presence, adoration, and ultimately love. The woman's heart, soul, and mind belong to Jesus. Now she stands in silence with nothing but an empty jar. And our favorite disciples criticize the extravagance of her act. They're angry. What a waste, they say. That perfume was really valuable. It could have been sold for a huge sum, and it would have helped a lot of poor people. Why are you wasting it when so many people need help? But Jesus is not impressed with the disciples' fundraising for the poor idea. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She's performed a good service. And knowing that the cross was only two days away, he interprets her act as preparing his body for burial. And it's at that point that he quotes Deuteronomy 15 to his disciples saying, the poor will always be with you. And so I want to take a quick look at that quote in context. So we're in Deuteronomy. After 40 years of wandering, Moses is laying out the terms of God's covenant with the Israelites who are going to take the land. And Deuteronomy 15 is about how they are supposed to treat each other when the, in the land that God is giving them. And so Moses describes two conflicting scenarios. He begins by saying, there should be 
no poor among you. And then he ends the chapter with the statement that Jesus is quoting, there will always be poor among you. Well, which one is it? Did Moses get confused? No, he was being realistic. He said there should be no poor among you because in the land that God is giving you, there will be enough. There will be enough for you. There will be enough for your neighbor. There will even be a surplus, enough for you to trade with the nations. Moses is saying that if you carefully follow the ways of God, whose laws are for the flourishing of the whole community, there should be no poor among you. But knowing the Israelites like Moses did, and knowing that they would probably not be faithful to keep the covenant with God, Moses describes how things would really be, saying that there would always be poor in the land, and since this will be the case, here's how you're to treat your brothers and sisters who are poor. Don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Be generous, lend freely, forgive debts. If a loan is not paid off in seven years, write it off. Deuteronomy 15 suggests that the poor will always be with us, not because there's not enough in God's good world to provide for all, but because humanity as a whole is not following the way of God, which Jesus summarized by the greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. And so we go back to Simon the leper's house. Jesus is not saying that it is futile to meet the needs of the poor because things are never going to get better and God helps those who help themselves. He is saying to the disciples that in this moment, I see in your lives attitudes and actions that contribute to poverty. They did not see the unnamed woman as an image bearer of God. She was vulnerable, out of place, risking and giving much just to be close to Jesus. She honored him in his time of need, and the disciples shamed and humiliated her. Do you remember what Jesus told the disciples right before they got to Simon's house? It was last week's text. Do you remember it? It was a passage about sheep and goats and the end of the age when Jesus returned, and he said to the sheep, Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And he says to the goats, whatever you didn't do to the least of these, you didn't do to me. Well, this dinner that we're at with Jesus is two days before his arrest and crucifixion. And Jesus told the disciples that right before they sat down to dinner. This was one of the last times that the disciples had to minister to Jesus in his human body. The disciples hear the words of Jesus, but they don't understand. And in the face of the woman's extreme devotion, they angrily advocate for the poor while ignoring Jesus. In this minute, they are full-on goats. But the woman was not about to ignore Jesus, and we see in her a model of a true disciple. Affection longing to be in his presence, adoration, and ultimately, love. The woman's heart, soul, and mind belong to Jesus. She doesn't defend herself, but Jesus sure does. Truly, I tell you, he says, 
whatever this good news is proclaimed throughout the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. But the story's not quite over. After hearing this, Judas goes to the chief priests and basically asks them, how much is Jesus worth to you? What will you give me if I hand him over to you? And they give him 30 pieces of silver in exchange for the Son of God. But the poor that Judas was so concerned about at dinner, they never see any of his blood money. Judas has been with Jesus for three years. He's one of the 12. This is a painful, tragic event that follows right on the heels of the woman's supreme love for Jesus. There's a lesson for us here. Here it is. Being around Jesus doesn't automatically mean that we are being formed by Jesus. Being around Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that we are being formed or transformed by him. Now, there are many characters in this story that, who have all interacted with Jesus face to face, and they've each made different choices. The religious leaders are not willing to give up their power. The clueless disciples don't yet get it. And then there's Judas, the false disciple. And at the very center of this is love, coming from two really kind of fringe people, maybe not the best reputation. One of them has a, had, had a communicable disease, and people are still calling him Simon the leper. He provides hospitality for Jesus and his disciples. He honors Jesus and an unnamed woman who demonstrates the attitudes, the love, the affection of a true disciple. A question for us today might be, where do we find ourselves in this story? I would suggest it moves around. I'd like to close by sharing one final story with you from Mercy Ships in Senegal, not by way of lifting up Mercy Ships, because I really think this is all our story. You can put yourself here in whatever way that you are serving the poor, in whatever way you are representing Jesus. You may have had an experience like this. One of the six specialty surgeries that we offer uh, is obstetric fistula repair for women who have been damaged in childbirth. This condition happens during extended and obstructed labor when a C-section is not available. And so a fistula or a large tear takes place and ultimately the baby is stillborn. And an unrepaired fistula without surgical intervention means that a woman will leak urine and in many cases urine and feces for the rest of her life. She'll be constantly wet. The smell will cling to her clothing and her body. And in many cases, um, it's a devastating condition, and in many cases, she will be a complete outcast. Modern-day lepers, you could say. On the day that these women that we are privileged to be able to repair their fistulas and return them to the table of human society, um, on the day that they have recovered and they are ready to go home, we have what we call a dress ceremony. We go out and buy all new dresses and fancy head wraps and we put makeup on them and we, we together have a celebration of what God has done in their lives. And I wanna tell you about one dress ceremony that I um, attended just a few months ago. 
I was a little late when I entered the hospital ward, and so I didn't really know what was going on. The celebration was already in progress, and Clementine, our lead chaplain, was speaking. And so I quietly wedged myself between two nurses that were standing on the back wall and just listened. I saw the three women we were celebrating. They were sitting on one of the hospital beds side by side, and they were all decked out in their new dresses with colorful headdresses. And I've attended quite a few of these ceremonies before, so the first thing that caught my eye was that all three of the women looked dejected. Their heads were down. They were, I could even say they were mournful. How odd, I thought. And so I turned to the nurse next to me and I said, why is everyone so sad? She said, two of the women are dry, but one is still wet. I looked again at their faces. This time more carefully, I, their expressions were identical. I couldn't tell who had the failed surgery. I marveled at Clementine's courage and skill as she masterfully celebrated all three, the two were, who were healed and the one who would go home wet. As she brought her remarks to a close, an old man wearing a green fez stood up to respond. He must be one of the husbands, I thought. And as one of our Senegalese chaplains translated, I heard the man thank us for the ways in which he and his wife had been shown love from the moment of their arrival throughout their stay. It had been about a month. He talked of clean water and nutritious food. He talked about having a bed to sleep in, that all the medicines were provided. He spoke in detail and named each kindness that they had received. And he told us how long they had tried unsuccessfully to get help for, for her. He mentioned the surgeon and the nurses and the chaplains who had spent time with them, the prayers and the stories from the gospel that we had shared, and the love. He kept coming back to the love that he had received from the crew. And then he began to bless us. Well, I thought, he's one of the lucky ones. He's going home with a wife that is dry. What about that woman? What is she thinking? How is she going to process this? And so I leaned again toward the nurse and I said, hey, who is this man? He's one of the husbands, right? I didn't expect to hear what came next. She said, yes, he's the husband of the woman who's wet. I was stunned. And I was still trying to take this information in when I heard my name called and Clementine asked me to come forward and pray. I was so confused, trying to think what is happening here. I walked slowly to the center of the room and I began to pray and it was translated sentence by sentence. And I don't remember what I prayed that day, but here's what I remember. The gratitude that welled up in my heart for each member of a team who together by God's grace had brought us to this place where a woman with a failed surgery and her faithful husband were still able to experience the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. I didn't think that was possible. This is the way of Jesus, I thought, as we live in the in-between times where the brokenness of creation coexists with the shalom of relationship in Jesus. Yes, I do think the poor will always be among us until that great day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because even with all our science, we can't heal everyone. And there will continue to be wars and corruption and justice systems that don't work for the flourishing of all. But we, the church, all of us, we will not be defeated. We will not give up. 
and I'm quoting Anglican priest Tyler Wiggs Stevenson here, our job is not to win the victory. Our job is to expose through our lives that the victory has been won on our behalf. And as a result, we will see shoots of God's kingdom erupt in our midst. We can understand and accept that the poor will always be with us, and simultaneously we can refuse to be defeated or paralyzed by that fact, because God by his spirit is at work all around us, even when we think we failed. And I offer this story and these thoughts in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.